you will, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to begin a new chapter. And uh, as we do, uh, the growing tensions at every turn are there for our Lord and His ministry. Uh, I want to begin with just, uh, again, context is king. We say that often. We'll continue to say it. You can't understand a passage of Scripture rightly unless you know exactly what's going on. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, after these things. Now, that's a very relative statement. <laughs> How long? Well, in chapter 6, we were talking about the spring festival of Passover. Now, tonight, we're going to hear in just a moment, in fact, that we're talking about a time nearing, drawing near to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in our calendar, late September, October. It's a harvest or fall festival. It's one of the three largest in all of Jewish uh, tradition. And uh, it is also the time, because of the harvest coming in, it's when people brought in their tithes and their offerings that the Lord had prescribed in the Old Testament. And so uh, it is a very, very big celebration. Uh, it is five days after Yom Kippur, that day of atonement. And uh, it originally started out as seven days, and then they added a, a day of a solemn assembly, a day of reflection. And uh, all of that builds over the centuries until we see it here in the gospel narrative. Look with me again. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the fear of the Jews, excuse me, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, now these are his, his half-brothers through Mary and Joseph, Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee, but... When his brothers had gone up to the feast, he, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling. We might put in the word murmuring here. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary. He leads the people astray. And that's where we're going to stop tonight in our coverage. Let's look once again at this passage. First of all, if you're taking notes, I was reminded of a couple of weeks ago, 
Mike, you need to make sure that we're following along if you're going to give us notes, okay? The first blank. Festivals, occurrences. Occurrences. They're happening. <coughs> Excuse me. Love coughing into the microphone. The first occurrences. First of all, in verse 1, we see that there is a high threat potential. It says clearly he wasn't going in because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, it wasn't that he was afraid of the Jews or afraid of death. He came to give his life a ransom for many. There was going to be death. There was going to be a sacrifice. There was going to be a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice for your sin and mine. But the timing was God's, not men. And so when we look at, uh, again, think about, put that in your thinking cap today, uh, this evening, because as we go through, we're going to come back to that idea. But first of all, we need to understand that God is aware. God knows when there's trouble. God knows that there are times when, while it seems like, hey, well, this is the time we do these things and you just need to do it, God says, wait a minute. There, there's a schedule that men keep. There's a, there's a plan. There's a daytimer that men tend to, to abide by. There's a calendar that they seem uh, bent on keeping up with. But my times are not your times. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so when God's son, Jesus Christ, is being prompted by his own half-brothers, I, I, I'm just amazed at this. Not so much that I'm surprised because if we think about it very carefully, we know that men, no matter who they are or how close they are to the things of God, can often miss the forest for the trees. The reality is these young men had grown up with the Savior. He was the elder brother. He was the one who always, you know, not only was the, he the big brother, not only was he the firstborn, but he's Jesus. How many of you have a sibling who, who just walks on sunshine, who never seemed to do anything except exactly what was right at the moment. Now, you don't have to raise your hand because that could be, you know, they could be in the room. I don't know. But the reality is these guys had seen the God-man grow up. They had seen him step into Joseph's role when Joseph apparently had passed from the scene. We know Joseph was a just man. The Bible is clear about that. He was a godly man. He was a compassionate man. He was a caring man. And, and listen, folks, he was a sacrificial man. He put aside what everybody might have thought of him and especially what they might have thought of Mary and accepted the responsibility to be the stepfather of the king. But these boys and their sisters had grown up with a perfect big brother. Now, we don't know all that was happening, but they had seen who he was. They had seen not only his perfect obedience to the Father above as well as to his earthly parents, but they'd also seen that, that it wasn't a put-on. It wasn't an attempt to get or garner praise from the parents and be the, be the favored one. It was truly his heart's desire to be obedient to the Father and, and also to be compassionate with him. I don't... You know, 
you're never the one that starts the argument when you're Jesus. You never push your little brothers around or out of the way. You don't pull your, your sister's ponytail just to see what kind of rise you can get out of her. They had seen him. And here at this moment, we see that as this festival approaches, this really the, in, in economic terms, it was the biggest, fellow, biggest festival of the whole year. And as it approaches, his brothers, because he had been avoiding Judea and Jerusalem, where uh, Jerusalem sits in Judea, they, he'd been avoiding that area and ministering in Galilee. And they said, listen, you've had a really good country preacher itinerant ministry. But if you're really who you, you claim to be, that you appear you could be, then you need to take this to the next level. You know... It's, it's okay to play the country music festival in our little hometown, but you need to go to Nashville. Now, I know you really enjoy those playhouse uh, presentations as a young person, and now that you've graduated and you get to choose, you need to make your way to Hollywood. You're going to make it big. We don't know exactly what was on their minds or how they had been putting this together, but it is clear from the text that they were not kidding. Look with me again as we read through God's Word tonight. As this festival approaches, as this festival occurrence, not only does he understand the high threat potential, but he also sees, again, there's, there's a harvest. It says there in chapter 7, verse 2, now the Feast of the Jews, the festival of booze, was near. This was a, not only a, a high threat potential, but, it, but as we look at this festival occurrence, we'd also, we need to understand there's, there's this harvest practice. This is the Feast of the Jews. This is something that everybody does. In fact, it was one of the three major festivals that all those men of Israel, those sons of Israel, those who had gone through their bar mitzvah and become a right-standing member of society were required to go to. So nobody missed out. Why? Because this was a time, again, the harvest was in, you were bringing in the increase that was due to the Lord, and you were a, a son of Israel. This was a time when everyone gathered and lived literally in booths, tabernacles. We would call them uh, not, not even a tent, because this, this wasn't one of those camping tents, you know, that houses eight men. You know, that's not what it is. It's more of a lean-to and a, a day covering. You might have even a day bed. My, my brother-in-law lives in East Memphis, has for many, many years. And his next-door neighbor, for many years, a, a Jewish man, would have him, because my brother-in-law is quite talented as a carpenter and handyman. He's a full-time fireman, but, but uh, has great skills. He would say... Would you build my tabernacle every year? And he would. And then they would take it down and they would get rid of the wood. And I was like, can't they put that same one up next year? No, that's not the practice. Okay. 
Well, the reality is everyone was there. The streets and the, and the surrounding area around Jerusalem was full of these temporary tents as people observed the Feast of Booze. It was just a practice. But there was a point to it. There, there, was, a, there was their history's teaching point. You see, it wasn't just that they wanted to have an easy way to collect the taxes or the tithes and offerings of a theocracy that they were living under. It wasn't just that they wanted to provide for the, the religious priests and, and those that served around the temple. It wasn't just that they wanted to have a, a harvest festival, a, a fun time for everybody to gather. Because the point of the whole festival was to remind the people of where they had come from. It, the fact that they built these tabernacles was to remind them of how they lived in tents for the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. It was God who had brought them through. It was God that had brought them out, had brought them through, and then brought them into the promised land. It was a reminder of God's grace and goodness and even their, His bounty that He had brought them into the land of flowing with milk and honey. It was a look back, but it was also a reminder that there was a coming Messiah. So that while physically and historically you had been those 40 years in the wilderness and life had moved on into the promised land for the nation, it's also a reminder that He one day is going to take all the faithful into the true promised land. He's going to take us home to heaven. That our lives are just we're just passing through. That just like those tents were, ta were those tabernacles, those booths were, were just temporary. This whole life is just temporary. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. And it was a reminder not only what God had done in the past and what He was going to do in the future, but how we're to live now. Hold lightly the things of this world. Don't get caught up in the systems of this world. Separate yourself and, and live as unto the Lord so that you don't get so attached that when those things are either lost or stripped away, you're okay. Because they weren't what you were concerned about anyway. It was a great, great festival to have. Not only the festival of occurrences, but there in your notes, second tonight, there was family opposition. We've set this up a little bit, and I don't want to belabor the point, but first of all, it says there in verse 3, Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him. As we look at this family opposition, first of all, I want you to see the word in verse 3 with the quote that he, that John, the, the writer, includes from the brother's lips is this, leave here and go into Judea. The words both leave and go, better put, go away to Judea are both imperative. They're both commands. Now, I don't know about you, 
But it's, this is a reminder of how sin blinds us to the truth. First of all, that's Big Brother. Not the 1984, you know, that, not that Big Brother. Not the one that, you know, your iPhones and, and your Alexa machines and your, all your AI are doing now. No, no, I don't mean to worry about that. Don't think it, I didn't mean to mention that. Don't worry about that. But that's the big brother, the firstborn of the household. And, and guess what? You've never, need, you've never seen him do anything wrong. So why would you feel you needed to instruct him, to command him, to give him an imperative? And, second, and third, you had been seeing the things that he was doing. You had seen the miracles. Whether you wanted to admit that he was the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world or not, you had seen him work miraculous deeds. But you know, sin, can we can see all that. We can know all those things, and we can still say, God, here's what you need to do. Just this morning, our pastoral care team was talking about a situation in our city, a tragic situation, yes. But the response of one of the family members is just, and I don't mean to, to out anything, okay? But it was just that the, the way that this young man spoke about the situation with his loved one was that his faith was tottering. Now please understand, his lifestyle is ungodly. I don't, I'm not being harsh, but let me just say, the thing we need most of all is just to say what's, what's true and what's not. He's living in sin. And yet his loved one, this family member, is suffering mightily. And things aren't going in the direction that he had hoped. And he told one of our young ministers, I'm just about prayed out. Prayed out. What he meant was, I'm about to give up on all that prayer stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not you and me who command God. It's God who commands us. Whether we're Jesus brothers, we're a young man in a Memphis hospital, or whether we're sitting comfortably in a chapel on a Wednesday evening, we are the ones to receive command, not he. Now look with me again. In, these family, in this family opposition, not only was there an unwarranted mandate that they gave him? I mean, who are they to tell the Lord Jesus Christ himself how he needed to calendar his schedule? There was also, look with me, after, he gives that, after they give them, him that instruction, so that your disciples may also see your works which you are doing, the deeds, the works that you're doing, that you're performing, that you're practicing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. 
I mean, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior of the world, everybody needs to know that, Jesus. You don't need to stay in the backwaters. You don't need to stay in the bushes and the sticks. You don't need to go around talking with folks that are snaggletoothed and no shoes. You don't, wait, wait a minute, folks. I'm, I'm from East Tennessee. Now, I've worn shoes for a long time. I just want to testify. I, I do have shoes. But I know how he, this, this plays out. The Galilean northern, north end of the Sea of Galilee, that area of Galilee, was very much a blue-collar, backwater-type environment compared to Jerusalem. It was a place where you would have some followers, but word would really get out about who you are if you'd go on to Jerusalem. Now, whether they're really interested in him going to Jerusalem or whether it's just like they said, leave here and go away into Judea. Maybe they're just trying to get him out of their own hair. Maybe if he'd go on into Judea instead of staying here in Galilee, people would start saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? Any of you hear that at home? <laughs> or at your, you know, if you're the younger sibling? Oh, I remember your sibling. Your brother was so good at, in my class. I never had an issue out of him. And he was such a good so bright. And you're like, I don't like your subject. I'm not good at your subject. I don't want to hear about my brother. In fact, I don't like him even more because you've talked. I don't know, we don't know what, it's, what the motivation was, but we do know, look with me, that there was an unwise motivation. What they're saying is, not only are we telling you what to do, but we're telling you to do it the way of the world. If you want your name out in public, you've got to go where you can get it out in public. You've got to, well, brother, Sam mentioned the Billy Graham team at the beginning of our service. Randolph Hearst, the mega media magnet of days gone by, and I believe it was 49, I'm not sure, 1949, young Billy Graham was in Los Angeles having a tent revival. Now, he had just started, didn't have a lot of notoriety at that point, but this lost media man saw what was happening. There were people coming by droves to that tent revival nightly. And it had extended. And when he heard the details, this magnet of the media world at the time, a newspaper baron, his words were, Puff Graham. Build him up. Give him a name. Now, we, again, can't look back even to that far, that, that close in history, to what Hearst's true motives were. But an unbeliever was saying, let's give him notoriety, this young man. And friends, let me just share with you, whether Hearst knew it or whether the brothers of Jesus knew it, sometimes too much publicity, too quickly, we get more acclaim than our character can handle. Now, that's not true of Jesus. But the devil was pushing every button he could. Look with me again in this passage, just to let you know that not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that these men were more egregious, more hateful, more evil in their 
demand for Jesus to go into Jerusalem and into Judea, but Jerusalem properly than, than this text allows. But there is always a schemer behind human words and human motives. When we're not believers, we don't have any spirit but the old man. We're, we're victims and shackled to the old world and the worldly ways. Look with me. It says, if you do these things, that is, if you're really committed to following through on what you've shown us thus far, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, by the time this is written, that's not the case. Before James, the half-brother of Jesus, is listed among those who were apostles, he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. That's a joke. We don't know if it's Baptist, but if they weren't, they sure wanted to be. <laughs> the reality is that family opposition, we often get mad at the person. But there's an enemy behind people. Remember how our pastor says, I love when he says this, because it's just a great reminder for me. I don't know about you, but he, ought, he says, folks, let me just remind you, people are never your problem. People are never your problem. You say, oh, Mike, you don't know my life. I got two or three I can list off right now. But that's not the case. You see, we do not battle against flesh and blood. We, when people are lost, my father-in-law says, Mike, do you know why dogs do what dogs do? First time I was asked that by my father-in-law, I said, I thought he was pulling something. I said, no, no, I, I don't. He said, because they're dogs. And I said, okay. Kind of like still not, you know, what's, he said, lost people do what lost people do because they're lost. Now, they may be highly intelligent lost people. They may be highly cunning lost people. They may be incredibly beautiful and multi-talented, but lost people still do what lost people do because they're lost. And so we shouldn't be surprised when they do things that are sinful and selfish and, well, when they're sabotaging the things of God. Why? Because there's not only the festival occurrences, but there's this family opposition because there is no faith in the Messiah awake within them. And so opposition in the family is just, that's a, a, a given. Let me just apply this before we move on. When you gather with your family, and lost people do what lost people do. You know why they do that? Because they're lost. Don't be overly hurt or in a panic or overly just out of sorts with a family member who's lost. That even though they share your genetic blood, perhaps, if they're there by bloodline and not by marriage, but now they're married, listen, 
Instead of worrying about how they're going to treat so-and-so and and they're going to do the same thing, I've got an Uncle Joe just like you do. In fact, I had three on one side of the family. Also had an aunt named Bobby and her brother named Shirley. So, you know, hey, I'm just glad I came out Michael. There's confusion in families. But those of us who are believers need to come to every family gathering, every family interaction with, if that person is not a believer, I can't put them to a standard that they ought to act like a good Christian, a mature Christian, a thriving Christian, a a godly, virtuous Christian, because that's not who they are. But it ought to be that I heap coals of kindness on their head, that I do everything to be winsome toward them so that they do know that there is a Savior to be had, and a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. My top priority is not, well, it was their turn to bring the turkey this year, and look what they did. My top priority is, when all is said and done, do they know Jesus and will we see them in eternity? Or we look across that mighty gulf that Lazarus cried out from, separated for all eternity. Scripture goes on to say, not only are there festival occurrences that are part of the background and part of the story and part of the reminder of what's going on, but also these family oppositions that he faces. And isn't it a great thing? Jesus had family too. He had family issues, family drama too. He understands. He's acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. Tempted in every way like we are, yet he was without sin. Scripture goes on in verse 6. So Jesus said to them, his response, it's, you know, it's divine. My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. Why? Because Their time is always opportune. Their time is is always good to go along with the world because they're already ready. They're in line. They're walking in sync, lockstep with the world. Their minds can't do it and their hearts and their spirits can't do anything else because that's who they are. They're lost. But my time has not yet come. It's not that it's not coming. It's not that, but I'm not going to be pushed. I'm I'm not going to be given an imperative command by lost people, and, and oh, oh, I, I, I got to do that. How many times are we pushed into doing things that we as Christians are uncomfortable with and we have in our knower an understanding this is not right, but we do it because the world pushes us on its timetable. Its time is always opportune, but our times are not always opportune. They're not always yet. Now, go on with me. Verse 7 The world cannot hate you. That is, the world has no reason to hate you. They're not threatened by you. You're not causing them any disconcerting emotions. You're not calling them out for their evil. So they can hate you. There's no reason. But it hates me because I testify of it. I tell it like it is. I bring the mirror of truth before their very faces. Look with me. That its deeds are evil. Not that they're less good. Hmm. 
Friends, it's time that you and I begin to understand instead of just going along the world and, and hoping maybe the next election will change things. I'll be 55 this summer. I know it because AARP is already sending me stuff. It's, I'm, I'm typically a joyful, even-killed, full of, full of expectation kind of guy. But every time I get one of those envelopes, I'm just like, oh, me. And the garbage. Denial got me everywhere, I'm not sure. But the reality is that you and I know better than the fact that an election is going to change things. It's not what, look, you've heard our pastor say, things aren't going to change because of city hall or county commission or what happens at the state house or the white house or the house of Con houses of Congress. We found that out. Over 50 years of my life, I've been watching it and no election has dramatically changed the course of our nation. In my lifetime, born in the last stages of the sexual and, and social revolution of the 1960s, I grew up in a free love society where everything is your truth and my truth and what's good for you is, may not be good for me, but that's your truth and you live your truth. You speak your truth. I'm like, what? I learned a long time ago, truth is truth. It doesn't, it's not personal. <laughs> it's eternal. You can't make rules for yourselves or ourselves. We can't do that and, and expect that everything's going to go the way we want because we've, we've got our truth. You and I are all going to be set up against the measure of truth, Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to be asked, what did you do with Jesus? Not Those of us who are saved, we're not going to be asked that because, well, if you answer wrong, you're going to hell. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, you're already in heaven. But the rewards that we'll receive and then lay at His feet because He's the one that produced it anyway are going to be determined by how closely did we live like Jesus. Friends, I think there's a point at which we have to say, Jesus put the mirror of truth before a world. Unashamedly, unabashedly, not unwisely, but unrelentingly, He kept telling them the truth over and over and over again. And if the world doesn't have some deep-seated hatred for the church then we've lost our saltiness. If a Christian cannot find ways to say, you know what, instead of going along to get along, I'm going to stand alone and speak truth because that's what Jesus would do. I don't have to ask what would Jesus do. I know because I can see it laid out in the Word of God. Look with me again. Verse 8 goes on. Go up to the feast yourselves, he says. Do not go up to this feast because my, I do not go up, excuse me, to this feast because my time has not yet come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up 
also, not publicly, but as if in secret. You say, well, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Why didn't he just go with him if he was going to go anyway? Timing. Approach. Motive. If he had gone with them, then he would have been accepting their motives, their, their methods, their, <laughs> their mandate. He would have said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, y'all right. And they weren't. He went when it was right, how it was right, and for the right reasons. Look with me. He says, So the Jews, in verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There, were mu there was much grumbling, that is again murmuring among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Now, as surely as we've seen, again, these festival occurrences and we've seen this family opposition, we've also seen, again, the feuding opinions the feuding opinions, not only between the brothers and the Christ, but also now between the crowd itself. Some had seen Jesus, had heard his teachings, had experienced for themselves who he was, and they were saying, he's a good man. He's a good man. Because you remember what I said earlier, that the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles was a way of looking back and reminding them of how God had brought them through. And how Messiah was one day going to ultimately bring them into the ultimate promised land. You see, there was a lot of messianic king of kings arrival at the moment of the Feast of Tabernacles as well. There's allusions to what would be one day. And some were saying, he's a good man. The word has the idea he's noble, decent, he is good for the purpose that we need him for. We need a Messiah. We need a king. And some were saying he's, he's a good man. He's the kind of person. He's the kind of prophet. He's the kind of practitioner that we've been looking for. And others were saying, no, 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 no. On the contrary. You see, I'm 180 degrees different from you. I am diametrically opposed to what you're saying. He is leading the people astray. He's not a decent man. He's a deceptive man. Wow. Wow. You see, the world, based on how they perceive Jesus at the moment, We'll say he's a good man for our purposes, for what we need. He's a good tool, an instrument to accomplish what we want. The others will say, no, 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 no. He's not that at all. He's deceiving you. He's going he's gonna to lead you astray. He's going to turn things in a bad manner. And you think it's bad under the iron fist of Rome now. You listen to him and it'll get even worse. You say, wow, that's a that's pretty, pretty different approach. But both, let, let me say, folks, both are diametrically opposed to the truth. You see, God is not a tool. He's not a cosmic bellhop to meet your needs or wants or desires. And the one who is truth does never 
never does deceive. Never leads us astray. Last verse. Verse 13. Yet no one was speaking openly. Remember I said that grumbling, murmuring, it's quiet. I can't believe he's not here. I'm wondering where he is. Where is he? There's a lot of undercurrent. It's like the most, the least, or, or the, the worst kept secret of Jerusalem on that Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody's talking about Jesus, just nobody's talking about it out loud. But it's the only topic anybody's really concerned about. But look with me. With all that going on, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Whatever side you were taking, whatever part of opinion you had in this controversy that was going on under the surface in Jerusalem that time of Feast of Tabernacles, no one was openly debating it on the steps on the Temple Mount, that open area where Jesus would often teach and we see him in the Gospels. But this last verse is a moment before we jump into the Really, this has been preparation for the rest of chapter 7, but before we do that, it's, it's almost like the word Selah in the Psalms. It's, it's one of those, take a minute and stop. Not only a musical stop, but a thoughtful stop. You need to ponder what you just read. When you see Selah in the Psalms, it means go back and read what you just read because there's more truth than you may have realized the first time through. Well, that's what Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through inspiration of John, the gospel writer, is telling us. Stop a minute. If they weren't talking openly, what does that tell us? If, if all of this had happened, and it had, and all these things were contributing to what was about to take place as Jesus did Go into the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a lot of drama in chapter 7. And if you think he's just, they're just imagining or Jesus was just overly paranoid, there are several, more than a handful of times in one chapter, chapter 7, where it is told us that the Jews were trying to kill him. God knows what he's talking about. But I want to I share with you some final observations. That's the last blank. As we look at these first few verses of chapter 7, I, wanna, I just want to remind you, first of all, Jesus conducted His life on purpose, not for publicity. You say, okay. But what does that have to do with us? You remember when you used to hear things like, these kids today, and then a criticism. Let me just share with you from a pastor's perspective. 
you may have heard that the most, uh, uh, the largest group who are leaving the church across the board today are those who are within the first year of high school graduation. The numbers are staggering. Uh, some people, oh yeah, they're going out, they're spreading their wings, but they'll be back. And well, after years of observing this kind of staggering departure, the numbers aren't true as far as them coming back. Oh, they'll come back when they have, get married, or they'll come back when they start having kids. And that's a little bit the case, but on the, on the, by and large, that's not happening. I have a theory. And it's because of the second largest group that's leaving the church. They're called empty nesters. Hmm. We went off to college and mom and dad left their commitments. They were so involved in church when we were at home, but, but now, and people say, well, you know, that's, but those that are empty nesters, they're at that life stage where they're at their highest earning level. Some of them are traveling more for work and the stress of work and the responsibilities work is keeping them. Or because they're at their highest earning potential, they have a little more freedom, a little more discretionary money, and they're, they're traveling a little bit that they didn't get to do, or they're going to see the new grandbabies because we know all that's true. But maybe our kids are leaving the church because for 18, 19 years, they saw us with a veneer of religion and no real relationship with Jesus Christ. We didn't hunger and thirst after him, so why should they? And why play games? If you know anything about today's culture, if you don't want to do it, Live your truth. Don't worry about impressing the pastor or the church folks. What have they done? I mean, they're all hypocrites anyway, just like my parents is what kids say. But let me just ask you another thing. We used to say these kids today, especially 10 or 12 years ago, and then these things came out. Now, it's helpful when I'm doing hospital rounds. If somebody goes into the hospital, my assistant can call me wherever I'm at in, in, the, in town or around the county, and she can give me, hey, there's a new patient at so-and-so, and I can get there quicker than me coming back on a, and finding a landline or finding, <laughs> can you find a payphone today? If you do, it's, a, it's an antique. But what came along with the with the convenience is also what we call social media. Now, I understand that there's a lot of young people on social media and all kinds of, you know, hundreds, if scores, if not hundreds, of different platforms that are used. But guess what? Again, a large percentage of those that are on Facebook, the largest one, are middle-aged women. Now, you can say, why was that? Because they're getting pictures of the grandbabies. They're posting, and they're posting not only pictures of the grandchildren, but pictures with the grandchildren. Now, I'm not saying there's anything bad. Please hear me. I'm not condemning that. Sharing, you know, your, your happy moments, there's nothing wrong with that. But let me just share with you that a young girl, ill-clad on a summer day, and post that selfie... Grandma holding the newborn baby, they're both selfies. 
We're doing it for publicity. We're doing it. Look what, look how good. Do, do you ever hear or see folks just saying, here's the worst moment of my marriage. We captured it on video. Would you like to watch the next three minutes of how we absolutely tear each other apart? No, it's here. We're standing on the rail of our, our anniversary cruise. Now, if you do that, please understand, I'm, I'm going to rejoice with you. Say, if it's your happy birthday cruise or whatever, I'm going to do that, okay? But I just want to tell you that these are just simple examples that we don't live our lives on purpose. We live them for the acknowledgement of people, publicity. Not only did Jesus live his life on purpose, but there's also another observation I want to make as we read this passage. It's here. The people that we read about tended, and again, social media does that, the way we live and interact with people, even in our daily lives, we do this. Even though Jesus lived his life on purpose, people conduct their lives for public, not just for publicity, but they want, they want people to like them. Now, maybe not the whole world. We, don't, we can't even fathom that. But we want people around us, closest to us. When you sit down to that family meal with lost people who are your kin, we would rather keep things on a surface level and talk about the weather and, 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 the, and the sports game that we're going to watch afterwards or how, the, how was work going or, or did you catch that news story as long as it's not too divisive than to say, you know what? Sister Sue, I've been praying for you. I, I don't know what that means. I don't know why, but I've just been prompted over the last several months to be praying for you. I just wanted to let you know I love you. And if there's anything I can ever do, I'd love to talk with you about that. Or maybe there's something, that big elephant in the room at that table. Nobody's really talking about it, but everybody knows about it. Why don't you just kindly, winsomely, with godliness, open up the conversation with grace and draw people to Him? Oh, that'd be uncomfortable. That'd, that'd make people be all nervous. Yes. It'd be a little work, but you know what? It'd be worth it if they came to know Christ. Or they made a closer step toward that faith decision. That surrender to Him. Third, not only did Jesus live His life on purpose, and so often we live it for public affirmation instead of purposeful, saying, look, one day I'm going to stand in eternity before a holy God and give an account. Jesus saw temptation for what it was. A derailment. You see, his brother said, why don't you go to Jerusalem because you'll get more attention there. Do you remember what happened earlier, especially in Matthew and Luke? Chapter 4 in both of those. The, it was the... <laughs> it was Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness being tempted of Satan. And he said... Why don't you throw yourself off this temple mount? Angels will catch you. Oh, people will come and they'll parade and they'll hail you as Messiah. Do you understand? Jesus has already dealt with the issue of temptation for popularity and acclaim of human beings. 
So when this came along, he was ready for it. See, I believe Jesus understood what temptation was. But you and I, we see it finally. People see temptation for what it's not. Delight. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? I bet I'd get a lot of followers if I got that done, huh? Oh, wouldn't everybody, you know how many likes I got for that post? You know, you know what so-and-so said on Wednesday night as we were walking out because they had seen and heard about what was happening with us? Hey, I'm not trying to poke the bear. But I do want us to be real. Real honest. Who and what are you living your life for? Are you listening to the Lord? Are you waiting on His timing? Are you doing what he says, when he says, and how he says, for the purpose he says? Or are you still worrying about what the world, even the tight-knit world of your family, is telling you should do? Just some observations. Just some questions for all of us. Ponder. Let me, let me tell you. I'm a half-baked preacher. I'm not fully done. I haven't arrived. He's still working in my life. The application is just as real for me as it is for you. But the question is, how are you living your life? As a reflection of Jesus Christ and how he lived his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. Thank you that even as we celebrated this past Sunday, and we're going to celebrate Easter again this Sunday and every Sunday that follows, because every Sunday is resurrection celebration. We gather because Christ indeed is alive, that our faith is not in vain, and the most pivotal moment in human history is real. And that means... It has an impact upon our choices. Lord, I pray tonight that you would make us new, ever new toward you. Help us to lean more and more into your truth, into who you've called us to be. Help us to live our lives on purpose, your purpose. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.